Well, happy Easter, everybody. It's nice to see you all. I hope that you enjoyed Holy Week and Easter. If you weren't here, then sorry, it was good. Um, But if you weren't here, I hope you were somewhere and got your taste of good Easter stuff. Let's open with a prayer, and we'll get going with the penultimate Bible study of this school year. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this Easter season. We give you thanks for inspiring us once again by the love that you showed through the gift of your Son. We ask that in this Easter season, we remember that we can be instruments of your peace in a hurting world. As things around us seem to go up and down, as people are hurt, even killed, we ask that you fill us with your peace that passes all understanding and keep us mindful that what we see here is not all there is and that death is not the end, but only a change as we grow closer to you. Today we ask your presence and your healing touch upon all those friends, family, neighbors that we hold in our hearts and minds who need it most. As we leave this place, give us the strength and courage to do the work you've given us to do so that all those around us may see your love through us. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Today we are in chapter 27. And chapter 27 is moving us closer to the end. There are three sections in chapter 27 that we're going to focus on. First, Paul sails to Rome. Well, we're going to say Paul sets sail for Rome. How about that? He doesn't quite get there in this chapter. Number two, we've got the storm and the angel. And then section three, the shipwreck. So this chapter gets us away from the trials that Paul has been on. He's gone in front of... Oh, thank you. I won't. I promise. I grew up on a stage. You should see... um, You should see... I think it was... Where was I? Oh, I was in Phoenix a few weeks ago, and there's an altar around, it's a three-step altar, and it's quite small, and they were very, very concerned that I was going to step off because I kept doing things like this and making people nervous, you know, and kind of rocking around, and I said, I promise I know where the stage is. I will not fall off. So uh, the first week or two I was here, you know how the acolytes sit on the sides around the altar? Um, If any of you acolyte you probably notice that I do the same thing in the pulpit. I will step back, and I don't fall. But Bill Power almost fell the other day, and I was very nervous about that. So it's, it's treacherous up there on that concrete, but I'm okay. Okay, so thank you for your concern. Chapter 27, Paul is done with his trials against Felix and Festus and Agrippa. And so they have decided that he needs to go off to Rome. Remember last week when we concluded, Agrippa more or less implied that had Paul not appealed to 
to Caesar to go to Rome. He probably could have just been released as he was, but because he had been put in the process, it's as if his paperwork had been filed, and so they have to actually send him to Rome now. So Paul, at the beginning of chapter 27, gets on a boat and begins sailing toward Rome. But the trip is problematic. They run into a lot of trouble. There's a big storm. There's an ultimate shipwreck. And then the last chapter, chapter 28, will be Paul on Malta. So for this chapter, we are basically getting from Caesarea in Israel to Malta. We don't know it's Malta just at the end of chapter 27, but the first verse of chapter 28 says they discover this is Malta. So if we can imagine the map of the Mediterranean, if you've got your Bibles or if you've got your commentaries, there are maps in them to show you. In essence, we are sailing from Israel. I, don't, I didn't draw something fun. Oh, but I can. Wait a minute. So we've got, we've got what, Italy over here, and then you've got Greece with all of its little stuff over there, and then you've got, I'm sorry, did I do that wrong? Boom. Turkey or something over here. There we go. And then North Africa, um, just like that. And you've got Caesarea is over here in Israel, and they sail up to, first to Sidon, and then they sail over and around Cyprus. Cyprus is right here. And then you've got Crete. Crete is here, right? Yeah, Crete is here. So they're sailing around Cyprus, then they sail around Crete, and then they get lost, and they hit Malta, which is over here, basically south-ish of Italy. So there is my lovely map. So they're sailing from Israel around Cyprus, around Crete, and then they lose themselves and drift for two weeks and ultimately land in Malta. So that's the action and the geography of chapter 27. And then we'll go through each of those phases as we get there. Any question about just the geography of where they are in the Mediterranean? Okay. So first we kick it off with Paul setting sail. So let's look at chapter 27, verse 3. Chapter 27, verse 3. Paul has been put under the charge of a centurion guard named Julius. And in verse 3 we see that they put in at Sidon. Sidon is just north of Caesarea. And Julius treated Paul kindly, allowing him to go to his friends and be cared for. So we'll pause right there with verse 3. Caesarea, as we know, is the northwest corner of Israel. And Paul has been taken from Jerusalem up to Caesarea when Felix was the governor. Then Felix leaves. Festus comes in. He spends over two years in Caesarea. Finally, he puts in at a boat in Caesarea, sails just a little bit up the coast to Sidon. As we know, Paul has planted churches all over the place. So there is a community here in Sidon that cares for Paul. 
And Julius, in this very first verse, is shown to be a relatively kind, considerate centurion. So rather than just holding Paul in a cell or tying him up to a tree or something like that, Julius trusts Paul and lets him go and see his friends, lets his friends care for him. You may remember, I've said it a few times in the study, that being a Roman citizen as a prisoner is a very kind of honorable way to be a prisoner. You're not chained around the neck and dragged around like a dog. You're really given trust, right? You are a dignified person. You are a Roman citizen and you have done something wrong. You have been arrested and you know you've done something wrong. And so you need to just be tried for the wrong that you've done. You're seeking justice because that's what a gentleman would do. And when they arrive at Sidon, Julius just says, you can go see your friends, but obviously you can't leave. Like don't escape because we have this agreement that you are going to be tried in Rome. And so Paul leaves, goes and sees his friends, and the story continues. Verse 4, putting out to sea from there, from Sidon, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After we had sailed across the sea that is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy and put us on board. So we'll pause right there. They have sailed up and around Cyprus and the Lee of Cyprus. Okay, who's a sailor in here? Do we have sailors? Yeah, that would be the south side, right? Thank you. Okay, I have no idea. So it's the south side of Cyprus. And then they found their way up and around because it was easier to sail near shore than just straight out in open water. So I should have drawn this line. This hump actually does this as they come around. And so they're down, they're up and around this little, you know, armpit of Asia Minor with Turkey. And they come back down on the east side of Greece. They've already begun to experience a little bit of trouble. Verse 7 says, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Nidus. And as the wind was against us, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Sailing past it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassia. So what they've done is they've gone from Cyprus up and around back down to Crete. Crete and Cyprus are big islands that are out in the Mediterranean. And as they sail to the south of Crete, they come to a port called Fair Havens. And that's where they put in. So they have found a ship. I find this odd, and we don't really know what this means. They, the centurion found a, an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy. So apparently, the centurion needs to take like an Uber back to Rome or something like that. I'm not entirely sure why they don't have their own ship. Um, but the implication here is that they just showed up to a port and were just going to hop on board with someone who was going to Italy. Alexandrian ship. We're going to pause right there. Alexandria is where? Egypt, right? It's important to note that the Jewish people are not seafaring people. They are the ones around the Mediterranean that really don't sail places, right? Egyptians sail a lot. The Greeks and the Italians definitely sail a lot. You've got Phoenicians, which would be sort of the Lebanese, Turkish people. They're all seafaring people. 
but not the Jews. And so for Paul, he is an unusual Jewish man having traveled and sailed as much as he did. That is not normal. And so they have this sensibility. We're going to see in just a second. Paul is not terribly excited about sailing. He's already had at least three different disasters at sea. We know this because in Corinthians, he writes about having been kind of lost at sea three different times, and that was written before Paul was arrested and taken to Rome. So Paul's had his share of ups and downs on the sea, and he's not coming from a culture of sailors. So we're going to see in just a minute that Paul really, really wants to stop because they've already had a lot of trouble. But of course, Romans and Greeks and Egyptians, the Alexandrians, they're a little bit more bold about sailing because they just do it all the time. And so they've seen some bad weather. And so this ship has figured out how to take safe haven at Fairhaven in Crete, and winter is coming. So as winter arrives, it's more and more difficult to sail. So it's typical that sailors, by the way, I looked all this up. I don't know any of this. Um, <laughs> what I looked up is that it's typical for sailors to just put into port for the winter. So they may not be at home, but they may just have to stop and wait for winter to pass. And then they sail on. So they're at the very beginnings of winter here, which means the weather's a little worse than it usually is. And Paul's going to encourage them to stop. So they have found their way to Crete. Let's see. Look at verse 9. Since much time had been lost and sailing was now dangerous, skip, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I can see that the voyage will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of, of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Paul does not want to go. Paul wants to stop. And Paul's not saying we shouldn't go to Rome as in like, oh, I guess I can't be on trial. He's not saying that. He's really just saying it is now not the season where we should sail. And so let's not rush it. I mean, he's been hanging out for over two years in Caesarea doing nothing anyway. So what's another couple months to, for them to skip the bad weather? But as I said, the centurion and the Alexandrians, so these are Egyptians and Italians, they are good with riskier sailing than a Jew would be, just because they are more familiar with the sailing. So any questions about how we get to Crete? Because then we're going to sail away from Crete in the next section, and it gets rough. All right, moving on to section two. So they decide they're going to sail away, and they leave Crete, and they get out into some rough sea. So here's my question. How, what's the last time you all experienced seriously rough water? I did. Do any of you get seasick? I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I don't get seasick, but I have a lot of people in my family that get seasick. And so I'm very sympathetic when the water is rough. Um, when I did the... Paul cruise, um, the Journeys of Paul two years ago, we sailed near this area. It's a little south, um, sorry, southeast of Greece around Mykonos. And we sailed from Mykonos over to a small island called Delos. And there is 
a big um, archaeological dig there where you can see Roman ruins and all that kind of stuff. It was not very far, but the water in this area is totally unpredictable. And we got on this little boat and there were probably, I don't know, maybe 200 of us on this little boat. And it wasn't a little boat. It was a one of those just passenger boats like you would see going to Ellis Island or something like that. And so we get on and when I tell you it was like a bucking Bronco, it was crazy. And so my middle daughter and I really think that's fun. Um, the rest of my family, not so much. And so we, of course, run to the edge of the boat just to watch. I mean, we are, we are literally doing this. And the boat is going so far down in the water sideways that there are a couple moments where I kind of didn't know a boat could lean that far, where it was so far to the side. I thought, this, this is capsizing kind of moment. Um, and the water was going over the boat. I mean, people were just completely soaked. And I kind of thought it was like a roller coaster. It was great. But there were people inside the boat who were like this. I mean, it was just, it was a mess. And it was only for, how long was that boat ride? 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely seemed like it took forever, um, but it was probably 10 minutes. So I sympathize with how, and the day was beautiful. It was a beautiful day. Sun was out, a light breeze, and they were still being tossed that violently. And so Paul is sailing through that kind of water. This is not pretty. This is going to be really choppy. So in addition to it just being choppy in general, there's a big storm. Verse 13, let's take a look at how they go. When a moderate south wind began to blow, they thought they could achieve their purpose. So they weighed anchor and began to sail past Crete close to the shore. But soon a violent wind called the nor'easter rushed down from Crete. Since the ship was caught and could not be turned head on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. So the storm has grown worse and they have to actually respond to the storm. So verse 18, we were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day, they began to throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, with their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So you all are astute Bible readers. What does this sound like? Does this remind you of another story? Jonah, yes, very good. I have no idea if Luke is trying to allude to Jonah, but this definitely sounds like the story. They sail away, they get caught in a storm, they are completely at, at a loss of what to do. So they start throwing everything overboard. That's a big deal. You know, we don't likely trade by sailing goods from one city to another. That's what these people do. So to throw their cargo overboard means the whole reason they were sailing at all is now at a loss. I mean, they have made a decision that the only thing they can save is their lives. That's a big thing. Because if you imagine some of these people may have sailed to a place, gotten some cargo, were to sail back to sell it, that may take two or three months. So they've in essence lost all income 
for months because they have decided to throw the cargo overboard. They don't do that lightly. So when they start throwing stuff overboard, they are pretty sure that it's either their life or nothing. And so it's a big moment when they decide to do this. And the same thing happened in the story of Jonah. So I don't think it's probably an accident that Luke tells the story in that particular way. It's one thing to be sailing and get caught in a storm and be scared. It's a totally different thing to be sailing, caught in a storm, and then throw everything you have off the ship. That's an unusual thing. And that happens in Jonah's story and in Paul's story. But there's a difference in this story because what ultimately happens in the story of Jonah? The problem is Jonah. And so the people on board figure out that he's the reason the storm is bad, so they throw him overboard. And then the storm calms down and they're okay. Paul's not Jonah. Paul's not running away from anything. Paul is meant to be going toward Rome. And we see that in the next section. So look at verse 21. Since the, okay, I'm sorry, before we start verse 21, just they've gone multiple days in this, in the ship, in this uh, journey so far. So we see day one, day two, day three, they, were, they saw neither stars nor sun for many days. Okay, so we're five, six days or so into this trip already. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and thereby avoided this damage and loss, which is such a jerk thing to do, right? Like, I told you. Okay, verse 22. I urge you now to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For last night there stood by me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before the emperor, and indeed, God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. So keep up your courage, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we will have to run aground on some island. <laughs> I love that. No, that's so funny. So Paul says, you know, see, I told you we should not have gone, but an angel appeared to me, and every one of us is going to live but we have to run aground on an island, right? I just think that's so fun, that's great. So they're in this storm and it's gotten quite bad. And Paul stands up and says, I've seen a vision. This is a really interesting moment because who's on the boat with Paul? These are all, they're all sailors, right? And I mean, what are sailors? They're not perhaps the most devout moral people, okay? So full of sailors, you've got Roman centurion, you've got other prisoners. So the assumption is at least some of those prisoners did stuff that is bad. And so this boat's filled with people who are probably not Paul's, necessarily Paul's target audience for evangelism. And yet Paul takes this moment to tell them about a vision that he had from God, a God he worships. And in a way, what he is doing is he's inviting them to consider that God is there and God is doing something important there on that boat with those people. I don't want to skip the significance of the moment 
because we don't, what do I want to say? I think especially today, and it was probably the case back then too, there is a sensibility about faith where there's a certain time and place for that. So it's great to talk about God in church, right? If you're sitting here in the pews at Bible study, you are probably much more likely to reference God or Jesus or something than you would be, say, waiting in line to check out at the grocery store or at the bank or wherever else, right? Because that's not really the place for that. Paul is doing this kind of talk in a place that is not perhaps appropriate for God talk, right? You've got a mouth like a sailor, right? I mean, we don't get that phrase for nothing. So Paul's gone almost to the sort of cliche farthest point away from faithfulness and morality in order to talk about God. And he does so. I just think it's so funny because I may have thrown him overboard by just saying, I told you we shouldn't have gone. Um, But he's trying to give them a vision for something beyond what they can see, right? And of course, we can talk about the, the metaphor of a storm all we want, right? We don't have to go into any of that stuff. We talk about the storms of our life when we don't mean literal storms, but when things are going bad. Here they are in a literal storm being tossed around on the sea with people who would no sooner be found in a church than be dead, and Paul's talking about an angelic vision. And it's going to begin to break through to these people. And that's really where we go through the rest of Acts, is that Paul, even in the middle of a storm, is witnessing to the hope that we have in God. So let's jump to verse 28. They took soundings and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took soundings again and found 15 fathoms. So I'm going to go out on a limb. I didn't look this up. Okay, sailor, tell me. What I think they're doing is figuring out how deep the ocean is where they are, right? Okay, so what they're seeing is that the ocean is becoming less deep. And so they are concerned that they're getting closer to land, which means they're getting closer to some place they could shipwreck. So verse 29, fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. But when the sailors tried to escape from the ship and had lowered the boat into the sea on the pretext of putting out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the boat and set it adrift. So here's what's happening. They think they're getting close enough to land where they need to stop sailing. They need to stop the boat or else they might just run totally ashore in the darkness of the storm. So they say they're going to put the anchors out, but the people who are going to put the anchors out look like they're going to make a run for it. And Paul has had this vision from the angel that says, all of you have been marked to be saved. And Paul has interpreted that vision as everyone has to be here in order for everyone to be saved. So you can't have people run away or else it may undermine the promise. So Paul says and somehow convinces the centurion and the soldiers that these people cannot run away or else we're all done for. And so when they say they cut the ropes of the boat and set it adrift, these are the boats that would, the little boats that would have gone to set the anchors. Now remember, four 
anchors. This is a big boat, and we're going to find out there are over 200 people on this boat. So this is not a little dinghy sailing around the shore. This is a ship, and nobody can get off the ship now. They're sort of stuck together. All right, before we move on to the shipwreck, any questions or comments? No? Looks like someone's about to ask. Okay, so let's move on to the shipwreck. Look at verse 33. Yes, ma'am. I don't think any conversions happened, no. The question is, does this imply the centurion's been converted? Uh, no, I don't think there's any implication of that yet. Um, I do think, though, that We've seen two moments. Paul tries to convince the centurion not to go, to leave Crete. Centurion does not listen to him. Paul tries to convince the centurion that everyone has to stay. The centurion listens to him. So I think what the shift is happening is that people are beginning to listen to Paul. No conversion yet. Paul's not really told them much. Uh, the only thing in the story at this point is that Paul has said he had a vision from an angel an angel of God, and everyone's going to be okay. Mm, that's not really enough for conversion yet. What we will see, though, when they crash land in Malta is more of the story. And once they hear the story, you do begin to see that there is a conversion of sorts from the people who are with him. So in essence, he's planting the seeds, right? He, whether he's doing this intentionally, remember, this is Luke telling a story. So these things probably happened in a loose way. Whether Paul actually said these words or not, meh, I mean, it's, it's a story. And so Luke is constructing the story such that there is foreshadowing. And I think that's what's happening here. No implication of of conversion, but Luke is definitely foreshadowing. He foreshadowed the storm. Now we're in the storm. And I think he's foreshadowing the sailors, centurions, soldiers' capacity to hear Paul's testimony. That's what I think I would say, is that he's indicating that they are moving in the direction where Paul is gaining some capital with the group in order to probably really hear the story once they are on Malta. Any other questions? Verse 33. Just before daybreak, Paul urged all of them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been in suspense and remaining without food, having eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will help you survive, for none of you will lose a hair from your heads. After he had said this, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then all of them were encouraged and took food for themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. So we are two weeks into this mess, they have thought to put down anchor. They look like they are going to escape. They cut the boats away, which functionally means we're now committed. And Paul says, just before daybreak, it's time to eat. And so he takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it, begins to eat, and offers the food to everyone else. 
doesn't take an Episcopalian very much to understand that he's here doing what Jesus did. And so he has had this vision from the angel, has shared this vision, which is beginning to perk the interest of the people who are there because Paul seems so very confident that everything is going to be okay. And now he's showing them what Jesus wants for us to do together. Again, this metaphor is easy to understand. They are on a ship adrift in the ocean. They don't know where they are. The storm is raging. The darkness seems to be all around them all the time. They are empty and starving. And what does Paul do? Gives thanks to God and breaks the bread that they have. We don't do this most of the time. Most of the time when anything's going wrong, we expect that God has somehow abandoned us, right? I've mentioned this before, but there's a, a, I think that as you get more and more secure, there is this general expectation that life will actually be good or easy. And when life isn't easy, then you get upset, like God has somehow not kept his promise that life will be a joy. Life is most often not easy, I think, and we only fool ourselves into thinking that life is easy most of the time. And if we expect that life won't be easy, then when it isn't, we can actually still give thanks because God never said anything about smoothing things out or keeping the storms at bay. God never said that he would prevent any of those things. God said he'd be with us when we go through them. And so Paul understands this in a very explicit way. So there in the darkness, two weeks without eating, he gives thanks anyway. And that's a good example for us because most of the time, it doesn't take two weeks of bad for us to be upset. It takes, you know, 20 minutes. And then we're angry and why God, you know, because we didn't get the parking space or something. So our, our scale of bad is a little, a little skewed. Looking ahead, verse 39. They see land, and they ultimately hit land. So in the morning, they did not recognize the land that they saw, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned to run the ship ashore if they could. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, they loosened the ropes that tied the steering oars. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the ship aground. The, bo the bow stuck and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the force of the waves. So they know the boat is a total loss at this point. They've hit the reef. Is that a car? It's not a fire alarm, is it? No, okay. Um, so they know the boat is a total loss at this point and they have to get to shore, but there's a problem. If they just jump off the boat and go to shore, that means everybody just jumps off the boat and goes to shore, including the prisoners. And so, verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none might swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest to follow, some on planks and others on pieces of the ship. 
And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So just imagine, I don't know if I've ever been in a legitimate bay with a reef like that. Um, I see in my head the opening of Swiss Family Robinson. Remember that movie? I love that movie. Um, where they kind of crash into the reef and they see the beach, but it's not a slam dunk to get to the beach. Even though it's there, the water is still very rough and deep. And so Rome is a take no prisoners kind of empire, right? They will not let a prisoner escape in order for that prisoner to come back and potentially kill them later. They would rather execute all the prisoners on that ship than let them get to land and potentially escape. But something has happened to the centurion, and this centurion does not want Paul to die. Theoretically, it could be as simple as Paul's a Roman citizen, and the centurion is there to guard the Roman citizen and so can't let anything bad happen to him. Or... It could be that the centurion has somehow gotten the sense that either Paul at least deserves a trial, or maybe Paul is really not guilty of doing anything wrong. And so because of Paul, all the other prisoners are saved. The ones who can swim jump overboard and they swim in. The ones who can't are actually hanging on to pieces of the broken ship. So we know the ship is seriously destroyed at this point because some are hanging on to planks and other pieces of the ship and quite literally like surfing them in onto the beach because they are at the reef. They've got to cross the whatever that's called inlet. I don't know. And get to wherever the waves are crashing onto the sand. And they're just kind of body surfing the planks of the boat all the way to the shore. At this point, everyone is saved. They will discover that they're on Malta. And Malta is not too far from Rome, but it's also not super close. And so they want to make sure that everyone gets to Rome as they should. And so the last chapter is going to be them on Malta discussing, figuring things out, and how to get Paul and the rest of the prisoners on their way to Rome. So questions or thoughts on this last section with the shipwreck? I'm actually early today. Yeah, that's a good question. So the question is, why wouldn't they have eaten for two weeks and then all of a sudden they have this bread? Um, yeah, two-week-old bread, right? Nasty. Uh, I don't know. I actually tried to find in the commentaries what was going on there because I thought the same thing. In fact, it says, I didn't read this section. Um, <laughs> verse 38 says, after they had satisfied their hunger, they lightened the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. So the implication to me, and I, can't, I could not find anything that explained where this came from, was that they had wheat. And so somehow they made some kind of bread. I, I don't know. Bakers in here may be able to say something. How do you do that? I mean, you're on a ship, right? So the, I, would there be an oven on the ship? I mean, I don't think so, right? Unless it's a big ship, 
maybe. I don't know if they're mixing something together that kind of just seems like bread, but it's not really baked. Is that a thing? I mean, I'd be happy to eat cookie dough, but I'm not sure if you're just eating bread dough. That seems gross. I don't know is the answer. I, and why weren't they eating if they had this? Were they saving it? I don't know. Obviously, you can, get, you can get by for a while without eating, right? I mean, 14 days is totally doable. But were they thinking that maybe they'd have a much longer wait? So they were trying to save what they had instead of eating something every day. They were trying to stretch it. I don't know. But there was this commitment. I mean, they ate and then they threw it all off <laughs> overboard. So I don't know if there's a sensibility that they knew the end was near or maybe it doesn't say this because verse 39 says in the morning they did not recognize the land. It's possible that because they had measured the depth, they knew land was close enough to where they needed they didn't need the wheat anymore. And you know, the buoyancy of a boat, the boat goes up in the water, the lighter it is. And so maybe there's, they're trying to f run the ship ashore as close to land as possible, knowing that they may hit rocks. And the lighter they are, maybe the closer they get because they don't hit the deeper rocks, they hit the shallower rocks. Uh, that's all conjecture, I don't know. I do not have any idea. And I looked, I tried to find that out. What'd you say? Yeah, they may have been seasick and not eating. I think that Luke is the storyteller. And the point of this was not that they ate. The point of this was that Paul gave thanks and then fed them. Because you do get at least the implication here. It doesn't say it. But there is sort of this implication like Paul almost multiplied what he had for the people to eat. Now, Luke doesn't say that, and I kind of feel like Luke is good enough to say that if that's really the story he was telling. But I don't think we can deny the implication that they've, right, they've been hungry. Here, Paul takes this food, breaks it, and then feeds everyone. And then they had had their fill after they had satisfied their hunger. It sounds like there may have been more than they thought there was in order to keep them satisfied. And that's definitely biblical, right? He's, he's hearkening back to a number of things, whether that's Jonah or that's the feeding of the thousands and that sort of stuff, even if it's not explicit. Yeah, first person. Yeah, this is... Luke's telling, well, Luke has, Luke has gone back and forth here between first and third person. He's, it's we and it's they, back and forth. It seems like it's more we than they, so I think that we can read this as one of those sections of Acts where Luke is there with him. Why he's there, we don't know. We didn't hear that Luke was arrested with Paul. But perhaps Paul, in that honorable way, is kind of traveling with friends. I mean, if you're going to be in prison, 
it's probably good to be a Roman prisoner because apparently you get to like go see your friends when you put into port. You get to maybe have some friends with you as traveling companions while a prisoner. That's the only real reason Luke would have been there. But yes, I picked up on that too. Even though it's not consistently first person, it's mostly first person. So we can read this as Luke was there. What else? Yeah, Ellen. Ah, question is, what the question is what was the consensus i will say was there consensus no um i think i had one vote for nine different books that we could read so um everyone had a good idea we had everything from the prophets to the psalms to david to genesis and revelation to romans um what was another one that I saw. It was a lot of single votes. So I have not decided yet, is the quick answer. The Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha? Did you hear that? That's my favorite. That's my favorite biblical word. I just had to say it. Pseudepigrapha. It's a good one. The Apocrypha is a set of books that are in the Catholic Bible that are in our Bible, but they are technically the Apocrypha. And so that was another vote was, you didn't say that though, did you? No, someone else did though. Um, what'd you say? You said that, Madeline. Okay, I was gonna say, I remember there was a name and it wasn't yours. Um, the Apocrypha is interesting because we don't really ever study it. It's a lot of stories, so that could work. I don't know. I, I'm. My leaning is to do a bit more of the basics. The nice thing about Luke-Acts is it's like the basics of Christianity, right? It's a gospel in the first century. That's good stuff for us to just know. And so I feel like we've got a few other opportunities to do the basics before we get into things like the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is really entertaining. You get Maccabees in there, which is all about the Jewish revolution prior to Jesus's birth. You have, um, that's where we get Hanukkah and things like that. You've got Bell and the Dragon, which is this great like sci-fi sort of thing. It's, it's good stuff. Um, but that might be something we do after we've kind of created a a better foundation, I think, but it's a good idea. Yeah. Two. Revelation got two votes. Yes. The Gospel of John? No, nobody mentioned the Gospel of John. Um, I'd probably be less inclined to do another Gospel only because we just did Luke last year. That and I don't really like John, so <laughs> there's that. Um, John's good. I, my preference, I think I've said this in here before, you've got Mark, Matthew, and Luke that are called the synoptic gospels. They basically tell the same story. Then you've got John that stands totally separate from those three. And John was written last, probably the latest of all the New Testament books written. And John has a very, a much more refined idea of Christ than the other three do. The other three tell more of a human story, whereas John tells a divine story, which is why most Christians tend to pull quotes out of John, because John has more of that, I am the way, like all the I am sayings come from John. And so Christians tend to like that. That's what you put on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or that sort of stuff. Um, 
Mark and Matthew tend to be legal and Luke is the parables. And so for me, I always pick Luke over anything because John can get a little, um, what do I want to say? A little too tight, I think, in who is and is not part of the group. And that's why a lot of Christians, I think, like John, because it gives parameters and definition. Whereas Luke tells stories. And I tend to, th- I tend to think the older, the closer you get to Jesus' actually l- actual life, the more the closer you are to probably what Jesus actually said. So I don't think John is untrue, but I think John's truth is a refinement of probably what Jesus really said. So it's true, it's fine, but I kind of like, I think Jesus was probably a storyteller. I think it's more likely that Jesus just told stories than he did quote prophets or talk about himself as the divine son of God. I think Jesus probably just walked around and told some stories. And so that's why I tend to like Luke. So John's good, but a different John. That's a different John. Um, so we have, we have multiple Johns. Um, John the Evangelist wrote the gospel. John of Patmos wrote Revelation. So different Johns. John of Patmos, who wrote Revelation, was someone like Paul. So he would have been like Paul and Barnabas and Silas and and the others who were planting churches. Um, It's possible that John of Patmos was sort of like an Apollos, where he may not have planted the churches, but he had very strong relationships with certain churches in Asia. So Revelation begins with, you know, I, John, writing to the seven churches of Asia. Right? So sometimes when you see Revelation stuff, you might see something referencing the seven churches. Those are likely the churches Paul were, was taken care of. I mean, he was maybe the pastor of seven different churches in Asia Minor. That's really what he was. He got arrested for that evangelism, was put in prison, and that's when he wrote the letter to those seven churches to give them strength and hope, even though the times will be hard and people will be killed, that God ultimately wins. I mean, that's, Revelation is the summarize, you know, summarize Revelation, God wins. There you go. Now you've got Revelation. So we're done. Um, And then all the other stuff around it is very dense and confusing, but the imagery is amazing. I mean, in this, in this space, we could do Revelation through art. Um, You know, we could bring the screen down and show you all these different crazy, amazing pieces of art that have been inspired by Revelation because the imagery is just out of this world. I mean, it's, it is otherworldly, literally. So keep your ideas coming. If you've got a few other ideas, or if you heard reference to a book that you would like to study, then let me know. You can shoot me an email or grab a communication card and leave it here. Um, I probably won't decide until the summer, but you're all on the mailing list, unless you're not. If you are not, then come up here and sign the list for me because what we'll do sometime in the summer is send out a note to everybody saying, we're gonna be studying this, the bookshop will have commentaries, and then we will begin on a particular date. We will not begin until after Labor Day, so you can just kind of circle September in your mind, and it may be a week or two after Labor Day. 
That is Labor Day, right? I always get Memorial Day and Labor Day confused. So it'll probably be mid-September when we start up again. All right, everyone. Have a good week. Next week, last week of the ACT study. See you then.